Welcome back to the Hockey Graphs Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Stringham, and today I'm happy to be joined by Sean Ferris, who's on Twitter, at TheSeanFerris. How are you doing, Sean? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, I know you've been writing for Hockey Graphs for a bit now, and it's kind of great to get you on the show, and I'm excited to kind of talk to you about your work. Yeah, it's fun to be here. So, Sean, let's get started talking a little bit about a piece that you wrote back in May, which was about... Um, kind of what was a really hot-button topic going into the postseason and even into the postseason, which was that uh, the efficiency that teams gained or the advantage that teams gained by emphasizing possession metrics didn't really exist anymore um, in the NHL. And, and you came out with an article that, that kind of refuted that a little bit. Why don't, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, so the word parity has uh, usually been um, aligned with that. And so shot parity became uh, a huge topic of discussion. I remember um, there was, I forget exactly who, I believe Dave Staples had um, had a post, uh, had a tweet about this. Um, Jeff, I mean, there was a, a lot going around about it. And so I just kind of wanted to put uh, my two cents in it, if you will. And really what I found was that there wasn't any, even though it was, um, there was high parity that year. There was a low standard deviation um, between uh, Corsi 4 percentage. Uh, it wasn't really anything that was significant. And I just kind of said, you know, to summarize it, that we shouldn't really be flipping out, that we've had low years before in very similar years, and we could easily see a rise or another dip uh, in the coming years. And that all makes sense, Sean, but... You know, when we look last year, uh, I mean, specifically, it was just more teams than ever were between 49 and 51%. Do you think that teams are generally getting a bit closer grouped, or do you think it really is just an anomaly? I mean, certainly you'd hope that they are getting, uh, or if you look around the league, it looks as though they might be, but I don't think there's anything significant that would suggest that this is a huge effect, at least at the moment. Um, I think, really, if you look at like the best teams, like Washington, like Pittsburgh, and you look at the worst teams, there's, if you look at Pittsburgh, for example, the, there's a lot of problems with that lineup, I'd like to say, but like their top six is easily what carries their numbers. So you look at Boston, who had terrific... Uh, shot metrics, um, I believe they're top in Corsi. Uh, that's really driven by their top line of Bergeron. Through the rest of their lineup, it's not necessarily as strong. So I don't think um, there's anything like too significant. There's, there's always going to be extremes that will um, exist. And I think we talked about it. There's a Buffalo team. I forget which year. 2015. That was just, yeah, 2015 was just awful. Like those those teams will always exist, but when you look at it, uh, except for the extremes, I don't think it's too big of a deal. There's no extreme closure that's happening. And you really, I think it's almost in sports, like if you look at the KHL, for example, they have three extremely dominant teams, especially SKA, as most know, who are, I believe they haven't lost yet in regulation. Is that correct? Or do you know? Uh, no, I don't know. Um, but like you look at that, like the middle teams in, in the KHL are all about the same, and there's just those few extremes that really bring down the parity. 
So I just think we just had a year last year that didn't really have any terrific teams or absolutely awful teams. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. I mean, uh, I mean, one thing that I was thinking about when I was looking at it earlier is the the best teams do seem to be not as dominant as they were, say, ten years ago in terms of possession. You know, we, we've kind of hovered on around like the low, like fifty-seven and a half percent is kind of where teams seem to be maxing out. Last year was definitely an example of, you know, the highest team I think was still below fifty-five percent. Um, so I am curious to see what the trend is. I mean, you make a point in your article to say that if we keep seeing this trend continue, that, that maybe it is something that's really happening. We are seeing this um, this parity in terms of shot attempt metrics really happen. And, I mean, if if we do treat that awful, awful Buffalo team as a complete outlier, then, I mean, they have we have seen kind of tighter groupings in each of the last three years, but... Yeah. I mean, when when you look when you look back at the at the ten seasons that I noted, um, 2014 was really where we saw we saw two teams 42 and below, which was different from 2015, which I think had less parity when you look at the standard deviations. Um, so that's something to note is that it's really those those extremes that drive it, and. We haven't had a team finish 58 plus, I believe, since 2010. So, I mean, I don't think it was just a thing that occurred last year. We really just lost the bin of 52 to 54, where we only had three teams. Because uh, 2016 season, there was six at the 52 to 54, and there was only 12 between 49 and 51. And last season, there was only three at 52 to 54 and 16 uh, between 49 and 51. So I think that's really uh, kind of like when people look at it, um, most people that I saw that were kind of like flipping out about it, if you will, um, they were using those bins. And so that's really just, I think, what was driving the topic. Yeah, bin, bin selection obviously does play a role in, uh, in looking at things, but... I, I, I still personally feel like it's something to keep an eye out on because we would expect the market to get a little bit more efficient. Who knows? Uh, I mean, I know you did write about it and talked a little bit in baseball about OPS and how that's worked. So maybe that's something to look at a trend to see if there really is a an increase in parity in the league. Um, the first post that you wrote, I guess, before you got to Hot Griff, so I guess the last post you wrote before, was you wrote about a little bit about consistency and how it affects yeah. shot quality. And I think that's, that's something that's kind of interesting. I was talking to you about it earlier. Um, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you saw when you tried to look at kind of team shooting relative to scoring, uh, the amount of scoring chances and how they contribute to their, the team's overall offense? Yeah, so basically one day, I think it was, it might have even been like, uh, winter vacation, I was just bored, but I was looking through some baseball stuff, and I found that there was a physics professor at Iowa State that did some research on consistency in baseball, and like I wasn't searching for the topic at all. I just came across this article, and it interested me, and he looked into slugging percentage, and he used a, he went through a, a, a much better approach than me. He, he used Markov change, which is machine learning, but he found that a team with an 8% higher slugging percentage at the same runs per game throughout the season would win uh, one more game. And so that got me interested in hockey and how we could apply that. And so I decided that probably the percentage of unblocked shot attempts that were 
scoring chances would be basically the baseball equivalent of slugging percentage. And so I looked into uh, the expected goal variance from game to game throughout a season and compared that to scoring chance percentage. And I actually found that the opposite of my hypothesis, which was that taking higher quality shots more consistently or taking higher, having a higher percentage of your shots being scoring chances, right? The top third of shots would give you more consistency. And in fact, uh, it gave you the exact opposite effect. And so then I kind of looked into the effect of, well, how does that variance, um, how does that uh, relate to uh, the expected goal model that Manny had at the time, which has now changed? And I found that teams that were more consistent would outperform the expected goal model um, of Corsica at the time, which he Manny has completely redone his expected goals, as most people know by now. So you talk about more consistent, uh, more consistent. How how is a team more consistent? Just on a game to game basis, or, or yeah, on a game at? on a game to game basis, uh, they're more consistent in terms of the expected goals for per sixty. That way, like it wasn't just um, yeah, because five on five time is gonna uh, come and go, and this is all five on five. I don't even know if I mentioned that in the article. I probably just felt like that was a given, but all five on five. I didn't look into. Um, I didn't look into uh, power play at all, but basically I found that they're more consistent and it makes sense that if you're not taking as, if you're not taking as high quality chances, then you're gonna be able to be more consistent because those scoring chances, which are the top third are a lot harder to get to. Right. So it's a lot easier to take maybe a mid-range shot than taking the extra couple strides in. And so on a game-to-game basis, you're going to be more consistent. So does this make you think that perhaps, I mean, there really is a quantity over quality type thing, that there is an advantage to just consistently getting a lot of opportunities? Do you think that goaltenders are playing a big part in this, or, or what are your thoughts? I mean, I think there certainly is an element that maybe quantity is... Uh, more important than quality. Uh, I think that's a conclusion that I probably drew on Twitter or something, you know, informally. I didn't draw it in the article. Um, but I do believe that there's a possibility that that is. Again, like binning, it, Garrett's, Garrett Holes definitely talked about it a lot. It's not bad, but this is kind of an example of the limitations of binning, right? Scoring chances only explain what happens in that small area. Perhaps maybe teams that take um, a lower quality of our um, less scoring chances per unblocked shot attempts. Possibly those teams are taking more of the you know mid danger shots, and maybe teams that take an extreme amount of high quality shots, their their other shots are more low danger. Perhaps um, that's an effect that that has on it. Um, but it, it was just kind of an interesting result that it was complete opposite of my hypothesis. Well, I mean, that's the great part about doing this kind of research is when you find things that you don't necessarily expect. Uh, I know from personal experience, I went back to go look at some data, uh, a new set of data to compare to results I'd gotten a few years ago. And, of course, the results were, were looked pretty much in line with what I had before. And 
I just went, you know what, I don't even think it's worth writing about if it's in line with what I expected to see. It's it's because it's not very interesting for anybody to read about. So it's great that you found something different. Um, and, and that definitely is, is more interesting. So it's definitely a good piece people should check out in addition to your other stuff. Um, but let's get a little more, more contemporary, a little bit less uh, in the abstract here. When we talk about players, like when we like, used to talk about, I mean, we still talk about it in this respect, talk about hockey analytics, we like to find those players that are undervalued by the market. Um, it, it's fun. It makes every you know, it, it makes you feel a little smart when the guy that you say is going to be good is actually pretty good when people weren't talking about him before. Um, and you've kind of done that in the past, and, and you sent me a couple of players that you feel about that way about now. So why don't you tell our listeners about some guys that you think are um, potentially undervalued in the market? Yeah, Michael Backlund's definitely my favorite undervalued guy. Um, Mike, uh, as most people know him as Mike Fail. Um, I don't actually know how to pronounce his his real name. The P F E I uh, L. He now put that out on Twitter. I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, I'll ask him after this. But he's definitely been a huge advocate for him for a long time. And I mean, I took a simple visit to Cat Friendly about a week ago, and he only gets paid about. 3.75 million i believe um let me check that real quick um yeah 3.575 not even that um and he's ufa coming up uh at the end of the season and he plays uh all all situations he plays on the second unit of the power play i believe he plays second line uh, for calgary obviously second to sean monahan who's paired with johnny goudreau and then he's their He's their best penalty killer too, and he's only paid three and a half million dollars, which is just remarkable to me. And his shot metrics have consistently been—I wouldn't say through the roof—but I believe over the last two seasons, his relative teammate Corsi four percentage is a little over five, and expected goals for that was three point one three. So definitely a terrific player who's for sure underpaid and definitely doesn't get a whole lot of media coverage yeah and that's the big thing the media coverage is kind of uh plays a big part when we talk about undervalued players as well i mean uh you know my washington bias will show through nicholas baxton's paid pretty well but he's been incredibly productive for washington for a long time on his current contract so that's kind of played out really well for him and, and it's nice to kind of see these guys that kind of fly under the radar and are productive. I mean, it's easy for us to say that every single young player is a guy that you could kind of look at or they're undervalued on the market because they really are these exceptional players. And uh, usually they do, they do a lot of great things for a team production-wise, but they don't really end up getting paid till you know, four or five years later unless you're one of the superstars who doesn't get a bridge contract. Uh, are there any other guys that really stand out to you? Um, Chris Tierney is a guy who I have, I'm currently have a draft, uh, sitting for hockey graphs that I believe will be coming out Thursday, depending, uh, upon editors. Uh, but Chris Tierney is a guy who I, um, talked about a little bit in that. And he's certainly a guy who has produced at a decent rate. If you look at his player card on Corsica, like he wouldn't stand out to you as bad or, or really good. He's produced at a decent rate, and Manny's war, 
who uh, Manny's war on Corsica has him at about like a second liner, I believe, last year. Point nine one war per eighty two, I believe it was. And so he's he's getting paid. He's got a year. I believe it was a one year contract he signed, kind of like a bridge contract uh, this year for seven hundred thirty five thousand. And his war suggests that he might be a second liner. So he's like definitely a guy who. I think teams should be taking uh, an extra look at and say, does this guy have a lot more value than 735000 And I'd say he certainly does. Yeah, I mean, there are always these guys out there that um, either the analytics community or someone's just going to say, you look at these, these players' underlying stats, and he looks like a guy that could do great things. And if this team's only going to pay him this amount, we should go in and we should get him. So I, I think it's it's... You know, we, we just talked about kind of the parity and how maybe the market's getting more efficient to players that maybe drive possession. But you just mentioned two guys that are obviously, at least on their last contract, were not valued enough in that regard. And maybe, and I guess these type of players will be a, a nice little litmus, litmus test for how the market is doing evaluating these stats. Um, because we do know that players are now getting some money based upon these advanced stats, which brings us right into your piece that you... Uh, I guess have another draft for, which is about why players should care about analytics. Yeah, so I believe it was September, maybe like 25th or something, Frank Cervalli of TSN had an article that came out, and I believe it was titled, Why NHL NHLers Hate Analytics, um, which is always kind of humorous. But none of the players, I believe they surveyed 18 players, none of the players knew their coursey, but they knew like their plus minus or had a general sense to it. I believe almost, I believe all of them came within two. And so like, that's kind of like mind boggling how they'd even, why they'd even bother to know um, their plus minus when a lot of them said that it's kind of a ridiculous stat. And then like some of them trashed it. Like Jordan Eberle said that it was a garbage stat for instance. And players have been kind of hating on it for, uh, a long time, I'd like to say, or they kind of not necessarily hate on it, but they joke about it. But Seth Jones in there mentioned, and I know this went around Twitter because of his grammar, but he said that you know sometimes they'll look at the at his numbers and they'll give him two hundred thousand uh, extra dollars or something like that, throw it in their contract. So they acknowledge that this is a thing, and we also know that some agencies are using these numbers in negotiations. It's allowed in arbitration. And when you look at hockey data, for instance, they have a contract with CKM, who's a player agency. So they not only have publicly available statistics, but they also have micro statistics to use in negotiations and trying to um, kind of market their players. So it's a valuable tool for agents to use. Why wouldn't they use it? And of course, they're going to use it to try to get uh, better contracts and try to lobby for their players. Yeah, I mean, the agents are going to care about it. The agents are going to be paying attention. Um, it, it's interesting because I'm not sure like what I where I come on, like how much I think the players need to know about it. Um, you know, I want their coaches to know about it. I want their general managers to know about it. And the players definitely want their agents to know about it. But why do you think the individual player needs to know about it? Do you think that they can grow their game by using them? Or, or do you think that's really more the coach's job to use the numbers to figure out how the player can improve their game? I mean, depending on what data they're using, I think it could definitely be used 
um, to help their game. For example, we go back to Hockey Data, who um, they work with uh, players. And there's also, I'm assuming, you know, most NHL teams do have access to microstatistics. Um, they could definitely use these statistics to help their game realize where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are. And when you look at a stat like Horsey, it gives you a baseline of, okay, this is where I stand around the league and my and what I'm doing on the ice. And I might take a look at, you know, if it's over the summer and, and you know, I'm David Backus, I'm getting paid $6 million. I'm getting paid like a first-line center, and I'm certainly not performing to that based on metrics. I might want to take a look and see, okay, what goes into a shot for and a shot against? Where am I possibly losing uh, these shots? And so I think it's definitely a good tool for players to use to help their game. So, I mean, I think it could, it's very useful for them. And then it's obviously if, if their agents and everybody else it, around them is using it, I think they should care about it. They should have at least some knowledge on it. They don't have to be data scientists, but I think it, it's important for them to, to learn a little bit. Well, if they're going to take the time bothering to know their plus minus, they might as well take the time to, to know a stat that actually has a bearing on the, uh, on, you know, their on ice impact rather than just a stat that's, uh, you know, rel- relatively garbage, but that, that, that that's neither here nor there. Um, well, I mean, Sean, there, the, you had a, you have a lot of good stuff coming down the storm here, but or the storm coming down the pipeline. But um, let's talk a little bit about uh, a, a nice little fun topic. Uh, you know, Mike Kelly's uh, a guy on Twitter who who's he, he has some stuff that I find pretty interesting. But he he's been out recently, kind of saying. You know, I, I last year I pointed out that uh, Claude Julien's Bruins weren't good despite having these good possession numbers because of this, this, and this. And now the Montreal Canadiens are are struggling to win even with good possession numbers. So, like, you know, I was right. Julien's not that good. Yada yada. Uh, what's your thought on the whole controversy? And and uh, you know, just a nice little put down there on. Uh, I guess kind of ties back in with your earlier stuff about uh, kind of shot quality and. Uh, versus that versus uh, quantity. Yeah, so for one, I think he did it purposely uh, on uh, RIT Hockey Analytics Conference weekend. I think he did that purposely so that a lot of uh, a lot of the community would be off Twitter for that. But um, I think Travis Yost he did like a little Tumblr post on it that really summarized it well. Um, the evidence that he presented on Twitter was. Um, just completely awful. It, it's not something you expect a data scientist. He put, um, I believe he used like a ranking system on like some kind of spreadsheet and looked at the relation to, um, to for shot quality and shot quantity and its relation to uh, their points rank, which is just something that's completely obscene. I don't think this guy really knows how to measure wins. Like, like, if you look through Dawson's uh, war posts, or I believe Manny's coming out with his, uh, Ian Tolick just had one come out. Like, there's different war models out there. Wins is not as simple as just, like, comparing it to points rank in the standings. And so it was, like, terrible, terrible data science. And he has a history, really, of just saying obscene things and not knowing how to back himself up. He came away with like some strange conclusion that quality was 
35% more important or something, which is weird how you're coming up with a percentage. And I believe in Travis's like little Tumblr post, he like redid the, uh, he redid the, his like Mike Kelly's what he presented on that spreadsheet and how he went about it with just a slightly different data set. I think he just used like score adjusted or something like that. And he came up with like shot quantities, 8% kind of in mocking. And so, like, I don't think he's really gone through a, and I could, I could be wrong, but I don't think he's really gone through a process that's correct in terms of finding what's more important in terms of scoring goals, shot quantity, or shot quality. And when you really look about it, and Travis said it well, and I believe Garrett had a comment, shot quantity is good at predicting goals. Corsi was more for predicting rather than being descriptive. And when you add the two together, it's superior than Corsi, you know? So they both play a large role. I don't really understand, like, the whole debate. Like, why would you debate what's more important when you could just be putting together a model that is superior to Corsi instead of complaining about it? Like, nobody looks at expected shooting percentage and being like, oh, yeah, yep, that's, that team is better. Like, they're going to score more goals because of it. Because it says if you have an expected shooting percentage of 20% and you only shoot one time per game, you know, are you going to win games? I don't think so. You know? Yeah, I mean, I know. But it's, uh, I think they're just, when there are these teams that have great uh, Corsi that, you know, don't get the goals it, it makes people doubt the stat. You know, we look at some of these Kings teams that uh, just weren't able to bury. Granted, these teams ended up winning in the postseason, so people aren't going to say anything about them. But um, it's nice when you got like expected goals where things kind of go hand in hand. And um, maybe with more broader acceptance of the expected goals models or, or war even, um, we'll see some of this stuff kind of die down. But now it's kind of easier for people to cherry pick whenever a team that has good possession numbers uh, does a poor job winning. Um, it's easy to just kind of go, well, look, this obviously isn't saying everything. So uh, I think that might be one of those examples here. But but there are other teams that are we had higher expectations for, whether that be with Corsi or something else going into this year, that haven't quite lived up. Um, you know, the Capitals are one. We've seen... I mean, people didn't expect the Rangers to be good. I don't think they expect them to be this bad. And, uh, you know, there, there are other teams as well, but I'll, I'll let you kind of go into it. <laughs> Which teams did, that you thought would be good this year haven't been so far? Um, yeah, I'd say there's a... I mean, if we're going to look at results here, I mean, Edmonton, I definitely did not think would come out to such a bad start as they did. And when you look at the underlying numbers, they certainly have... Um, they certainly have good underlying numbers. I believe it's like 61% expected goals for percentage. They just have like 30% goals for percentage. Like I expect those to come back to the, to the mean, you know, I don't expect them to, to be sitting on the, on the bottom of, of the Western conference for very long. Um, when you look at like teams that are, that are certainly overperforming expectations, you know, you look at the Knights who I don't think, you know, regardless of the wins, I don't think anybody would have thought they would come out with half decent shot metrics. I think really everybody thought they'd be on the bottom of the league. And then the Devils have come out and haven't been too bad. Um, and I don't think their records that um, that much greater than how they've played. 
Now, what do you think about a team like, uh, you know, Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh's like, you know, the results are okay. They're looking pretty good. Uh, but their kind of possession numbers, their their Corsi Fortis isn't quite as good as you probably would have expected from a team like them. I, I know they struggled with that metric a little bit last year and so did expected goals. But I believe they're around even for expected this year. I don't, I don't know. What do you think about yeah. our defending cup champions? Yeah, they're 16th right now in unadjusted uh, expected goals for. And that's not something I would have expected. But definitely when you look at the bottom six, I think it's almost like Florida last year. Um, in October and November, they like almost they lack a, a bottom six in it. And it's to, definitely an issue and something that I'd be concerned with going through the rest of the season. And certainly their trade over the uh, weekend with getting Riley Sheehan, I don't think that helps at all. He put up a terrible year in Detroit last year and really hasn't shown much in his career. Just the fact that he was highly touted at one point. I don't think um, that's necessarily uh, a reasonable reason to believe that he'll improve. And let it, you know, having Nick Benino go, I think, has really hurt them a lot. Just not having that third-line center and that good penalty killer uh, definitely hurting them. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to hear me complaining if Pittsburgh takes a bit of a step back this year. So, um, But we'll see. You know, It's hard to bet against that much skill up front. Um, I, I guess, Sean, one of the last teams I want to get your take on is because it's the team that, you know, everybody cares about because, you know, hockey mecca is, uh, Toronto. Uh, you know, their possession numbers are good. Their record's good. Are they the real deal this year? I mean, goaltending right now is certainly an issue. I have Freddie Anderson on one of my fantasy teams, so I haven't been too happy. Uh, but I don't expect him to stay bad for the rest of the year um you know and everybody knows they're they got high flying skill up and down the ice i wouldn't be too concerned on them regressing or anything at all i think they'll get better goaltending going forward and certainly they might have you know scoring jobs throughout the season but this is a skilled team um through really all four lines. I believe Connor Brown still play in the fourth line. So I'm going to consider like the fourth line as still as like a skilled line. Um, but they're definitely a team that has a lot of skill. I don't really care about the Roman Polak signing. I don't think that's like a terrible sign going forward. I think they'll, they'll finish towards the top of the Atlantic, if not the top of the Atlantic and hopefully have some postseason success. I think it's an exciting time to be a Maple Leafs fan, and uh, I, I enjoy watching them, even, even when they're playing uh, a team that I, I might have a bit more of a rooting interest for. They're definitely a lot of fun to watch, and uh, I think, uh, I'm sure all of our listeners have been watching them a lot, and you know, they and Dallas are two teams that are uh, they're just a lot of fun. So, uh, Sean, I guess I want to get one more thing from you, and that's, uh, of the teams that have started the year with bad results, you've already mentioned Edmonton. Who else do you think is going to kind of right the ship and get it together as the year goes on? Um, I believe Boston will. I mean, Boston started out with injuries to David Backus and Patrice Bergeron, and they're still going through some injuries right now. So I believe, you know, they might still stay in that rut for a little bit. But they've produced, you know, half decent. They're 13th in expected goals, four percentage. They, you know, they've done half decent even without Bergeron in the lineup consistently. 
And with the injuries, if they get healthy, I think they could definitely be a solid team. Losing, I mean, I mean, they did on their own, but losing Kevin uh, Colin Miller uh, certainly is hurting their team. He was definitely their best right-hand defenseman last year, but Carlos improving from last season, and he had a decent rookie season for a 19-year-old. Uh, McAvoy has certainly been fun to watch and adds a uh, second power play defenseman. And Krug, you know, their their defense is looking, you know, decent for losing basically their best right-hand defenseman last year and two years ago, or three years ago now, back in 2015, um, losing their best right-hand defenseman at the time, then Dougie Hamilton. So, uh, you know, the, their defense is not looking terrible. Tuca should hopefully come back from his injury, you know, performing you know, half decent, hopefully, and I think they can make the playoffs and possibly do damage if they make it there. Well, Sean, I really do appreciate you taking the time to come on, and and I know our listeners will be uh, excited to kind of co-read your pieces here in the upcoming uh, future. All right, it's been fun. Yeah, man, we'll have you on again. Sean, why don't you just uh, give our listeners your Twitter handle and just make sure that uh, they, they know how to spell your last name and first name properly. All right, so it's at the... Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S. All right. Uh, Thanks again for coming on, Sean, and I hope all of our listeners enjoyed this episode. If you guys do enjoy it, please give us a review on iTunes. Give us a follow or subscribe. Um, And as always, you can follow me on Twitter, at StringhamA. Uh, Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hockey Graphs Podcast.